Welcome back to Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. the director of outreach and today I'm going to be talking to Jess Molyneux the director of Team Sol who's studying MPhil in multidisciplinary gender studies at Cambridge. Hi Jess thanks so much for joining me. Hi Izzy lovely to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you today about gendered experiences of refugeehood. Do you want to start off by telling me a bit about the main focus of your research? Yeah sure so at the moment I'm working quite specifically for my MPhil thesis on family separation in the UK asylum system so I'm looking at the ways that racialized gender and histories of family separation and family separation's role in coloniality and enslavement play into current models of the ways that families navigate the asylum system and the particular gendered implications of that. But I've previously done some work also on kind of a more bigger picture gender and displacement um, and the ways that gender can bear upon displacement before focusing on the UK context and have also done some work on period poverty and kind of lack of service provision more generally among female refugees mainly. Amazing so I think a really important question to start with is why should we look at gender in relation to refugee experiences what's the importance of a gendered life? Yeah, such a good question. So I think the reason that I find it particularly important to look at gender in the context of displacement is because displacement is one of the most tricky and hardest and kind of most devastating experiences that people will have. And I think that gender often adds, for women and people of marginalised genders, it just adds another dimension of hardship. I think the male as norm approach that we have in the world generally, when that bears upon traumatic experiences, it's particularly detrimental. And I think when we're thinking about refugees, it's really important to remember that the original refugee convention was not really written with women in mind. And there's no explicit provision in the refugee convention for gendered persecution. I think we'll talk a bit more about that later. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that the international framework that we have for refuge and international protection doesn't explicitly bring a gendered lens. And so we have to keep constantly working to bring in that focus um, and to remind ourselves that gender has a really important bearing upon people's experiences in these cases. Yeah, thank you. That's such an interesting answer. I think it's really important that we bear in mind that when we talk about gender, it quite often centres around women. But we're like you said, we're talking about all different genders and the impact it has on kind of everyone as a result of their gender. You mentioned that gender is not a category for a reason um, to seek asylum. Can you unpack this a bit? Yeah, so um, the UN Refugee Convention lists um, a, a number of um, categories um, under which people um, can, can claim asylum on the basis of a fear of being persecuted because of one of those categories. So things like race, religion, nationality. Um, and then one of those categories is membership of a particular social group. And so this is the category that in case law and kind of like addendums to the convention um, and guidance on the convention has been used and interpreted for um, cases of gendered persecution or gender related asylum claims. So this can be, for example, um, having to flee your home because of persecution on the basis of your gender identity itself. Um, So if you're a trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming person, um, that can often be a quite, um, not necessarily clear cut, but quite obvious case of persecution um, when you face um, 
transphobic violence um, or you can't access the, the provision that you need to live in your home country. But then also there are um, gendered reasons why you might be persecu- persecuted in, in different ways. Um, and th- this does mainly apply to, to women um, and people assigned female at birth. And so this will be things like female genital cutting. Um, if you fear that happening to you or you fear it happening to your children, that's often that's a common uh, grounds for claiming um uh, protection um, and the way that that works is that in case law precedents have been have been set to um, encompass a gendered aspect when to and to say that gender is a particular social group but it's not it's not straightforwardly the case that um, we, we've added women as a social group um, because that's um, like far too broad and far too um, like unspecific for asylum law um, and has also faced a lot of difficulties because of things like the fact that violence against women and violence against people of marginalized genders is a universal phenomenon so there were horrific like horrible cases um a few decades ago when people claiming asylum would almost be told like you can't claim asylum from domestic violence that's happening in your home country because domestic violence happens everywhere or sexual violence happens everywhere and um that's been a real problem but there has since been case law precedent which narrows groups so for example for women experiencing domestic violence this could be like pakistani women who live with men who have an ideology of male dominance so that's been created in case law as a social group that sets a precedent for then other women of other nationalities in the same situation being set as a group um or like women of the same nationality being considered under that group i think that was really interesting because like i was reading about this case the other day actually and i think the really interesting thing about that was they said that you could seek asylum um, as a woman escaping domestic violence only if your country didn't have provisions to support women escaping domestic violence, which I thought was quite an interesting kind of add on to that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a big problem that we've seen in that one of the requirements in order to show that the state because you, you have to not only prove that you have a fear, but that the, the state won't protect you um, from that fear. And also that in you wouldn't be safe in any part of your country. So you have to also prove that you couldn't have just fled to a neighbouring city or gone back home to live with your parents, for example, if you're to get out of the house where you're facing abuse, which creates real problems for the fact of like when cases aren't made, like awareness of ways that, that people can be like stalked and tracked. Um, but also I think requires that women or people facing these this abuse put themselves in a situation of further unsafe, uh, like lack of safety. Because if you know that you'll call the police and you know that they will victim blame or that they won't do anything about it or that they will back your husband up, you, you're you not really going to try and call them in order to be able to say in a later asylum claim what's happened. Because also that puts you in a, a situation of incredible vulnerability where your abuser is likely very angered. And so I just wonder about the number of, of women and, and other people who face this experience who are out there or in fact, not out there, who have had to put themselves in that position of less safety and and not survived. So, yeah, I think it's just very sad um, that the test that we have to do is to return people to, to see if their state protects them, if they can't prove that in the first instance. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. This isn't specifically about refugees, but I was reading a case study earlier of um, a woman who was trafficked to the UK and she was kind of like held by an abuser for a really really long time and when she eventually managed to escape and tried to seek asylum they said well you've been in the country for five six seven years why have you not why are you only now seeking asylum and they just didn't take into consideration the fact that to she could only have escaped then and she could only have kind of um taken the steps to seek asylum then well so this is actually with um 
with the increasing provision that we're seeing in the Nationality and Borders Bill and the way that that is proposing to change things that actually makes cases like that far more common because um, survivors of um, of torture as well as sexual violence are now being required to bring forward all evidence um, that's relevant to their claim at the earliest opportunity, um, which is just kind of ridiculous when you think about the length of time that it takes traumatised people um, to process their experiences and be able to disclose them, not just to anyone, but to state officials who are in a lot of cases, the people who were doing the persecution that they have fled from. And then when you add onto that the gendered aspect, I mean, that applies to trauma generally, but when you add onto that the gendered aspect of these traumas where there's often such strong taboos and such strong like cultures of shame um, and often just practical issues about being interviewed by a man. And there are like lots of women from lots of different cultures will simply not disclose to a man that they have faced sexual violence. Um, and um, there are, yeah, there are, there are just so many reasons why people might not put forward all the evidence straight away um, or because they fear that like disclosing the evidence will um, in some kind of, um, in some kind of way, make them um, more visible to their abuser if the experience they've had is just keep quiet so that you keep safe. Um, so there's just so many gendered reasons um, and just more general reasons why, those provisions in order for people to bring all the evidence as soon as possible if they're to be believed by the Home Office when they're already unlikely to be believed um, is, yeah, really awful and um, really um, not taking gender into account. Yeah, I think that really nicely kind of sums up um, gender as an issue for seeking asylum and in the asylum claims, but it's not just important in that kind of area um but it's not just important in kind of this seeking asylum and fleeing um wherever they're from it's also a big factor in their life in the lead up to this in the camps and their life after can you tell me a bit about the gendered experience in camps and kind of once they're settled yeah for sure so we'll talk a bit about gendered experience in refugee camps but also in detention centers if they're if you're not say in Greece um or a neighboring country but you come to somewhere like the UK or you don't have camps and then um, we'll talk a bit about life after whether, whether you gain asylum or not um so um I think this is one that people maybe know a bit more about um, when we talk about camps and uh, I mean a, a, amidst a general um inadequacy of provision of um infrastructure and facilities um the facilities for um uh, women and people of marginalized genders are often the often significantly worse especially if we think about the kind of yeah male as norm design of the camps as i was saying earlier about the male as norm approach so for example toilets being placed um somewhere in the camp without much thought um where there's little light for example or the locks on the doors don't work or they're just in a remote location um means that um yeah things like that mean that uh, women and uh, often have a much harder time and um are exposed to sexual violence i mean the exposure to sexual violence is um a repeating motif in um any kind of journey that you think of a refugee having so um not just within camps but at borders by border guards as well as the fact that, that might be what you're fleeing and women for refugee women have actually done some really harrowing research which shows that women who um who were raped in their home country or been raped at any stage of their journey were then subsequently at every stage more likely to be raped um which is so this is re- really vulnerable people having their vulnerability like exponentially increased at every turn um and that that also is the case especially for um 
trans women or gender non-conforming people um, and um, women of colour um, often face a racialized um, aspect of that kind of abuse, especially um, women for refugee women have also released some reports on detention centres in the UK that um, exposes like blatantly racist abuse by staff um, in Yarswood, um, where it's mainly women who are housed there. Um, if we think about the experience of trans women in um, detention or at the point where um, their claim is being considered, they're often placed in um, detention centres which which um, place them with the, the sex that they were assigned at birth rather than the actual sex, which obviously leaves them massively exposed to, um, to violence and is just from a mental health perspective, very dysphoric. Um, and so a lack of sensitivity to gender identity um, is often an issue in camps and in detention. Um, there are other various like gendered burdens in um, when people are in limbo um, and when people are reliant on states because they haven't um, or, or, or charities because they haven't got their own um, provision because their their case is still being considered. So if we think about um, in camps, for example, when people are given food provision, um, this is often can be culturally insensitive and is often just given to you rather than you're given the ingredients to cook and this is something that women um, in an Oxfam report have reported feeling very um, disheartened and upset about because it's their responsibility to look after their family and to cook for their family Um, and when their family like aren't eating food that's not appropriate or has gone cold because you've stood in line for too long they're just really desperate to be able to be to be given the ingredients and the facilities to cook for their family Um, so those like small or seemingly small things that give a bit of relief um, to the day-to-day experience of being in a camp um, aren't even achieved. But then also to to not just talk about women because everyone has gender and um, men also face very gendered difficulties in this um, limbo situation when we think about the fact that lots of asylum seekers for at least an initial period in most countries and the UK has the longest of these periods um, across Europe um, don't have the right to work. And that can lead to really difficult tensions um between your um, perceived gender role as much as we might like to um to fight against that gender role it's often the case that men are the ones who are expected to provide for their family and be the breadwinner and when they can't do that we see often um like very sadly it can lead to um escalation in domestic violence rates because men are frustrated and um and there was just a, a horrible um little account from a man in this Oxfam report that I mentioned earlier which was a 2016 assessment of the gendered aspects of the Greek camps and then um, this man said I um I come home and I beat my wife and I don't know why and she doesn't know why um and it was just because he he was he was in this limbo stage that didn't allow him to fulfill all the expectations that were expected of him in his gender role and that's not to excuse perpetrators but to say that there are gendered aspects of both being a perpetrator and being a victim um which fall outside the way that we usually dichotomize that into male threat and female victim um, in the narratives are a lot more complicated than that and there's a lot more work to be done in service prison that needs to be in place and psychological support to help people um, in these situations. Yeah I think it's really important that we kind of consider both sides to it. It's interesting that you kind of mentioned this domestic violence within the camps and I did a lot of research on cycles of abuse and like you said women that had experienced abuse are more likely to experience it kind of in camps and when they're settled um, and a lot of the time refugees are not they, there's a no recourse to public funds clause for refugees kind of when they've got um their status and kind of they're in this limbo before and a lot of the time it means it's really hard for women to 
kind of escape things like domestic violence because they can't have access to shelters and support so then they're still kind of stuck in this with their abuser I think this brings us to kind of talking more about life when they're settled can you kind of unpack the gendered aspects after settlement yeah so I think firstly it's just really important to pick up on the fact that not everyone gets settled so I'll talk so there's a gender aspect of if you gain refugee status it doesn't suddenly become easy gender doesn't go away um but like you point out when people are destitute because they're waiting on the application being processed this also obviously applies if you're a failed asylum seeker and are in the process of lodging a new claim or often the home office makes dubious decisions which mean that they recognize that you can't be returned to your country of origin but they don't grant you asylum um which places you in a very strange in-between place where, like you say, you don't have access to public funds. And I think um, the gendered specificities of that experience are quite obvious. If you're having to sleep rough, you're far more exposed to violence. And like you said, not just being trapped with your abuser, but forming new relationships um, that you then become dependent on um, or being forced into kind of um, situations to get a roof over your head where you're working for um, families who then exploit you. Um, But also I... um, I think that gem- that speaks more generally to that situation of precarity, which even after you've gained um, asylum status, there's often a lot of fear, especially if you only have temporary protection. There's a lot of fear around um, interactions with the Home Office or state institutions um, and cases of people who don't um, seek healthcare, for example, um, support or other kinds of support because of that um, <clears throat> uncertainty around status or even once you have gained status, a, a kind of remaining fear. Um, and so there was um, in one of the amazing reports that Women for Refugee Women have done um, a story about a woman who I think I think she had actually had a failed asylum claim um, and um, was so scared of being deported by the Home Office that she didn't seek treatment for her breast cancer which had been diagnosed um until a year later um when it was too late and this report just like heartbreakingly said that since her telling that story to women for refugee women she had passed away because um the cancer had, was too developed when she did seek help um and i think this also applies if we think about people gender non-conforming people and trans people especially need access to certain kind, specific kinds of healthcare. so when they're in that limbo stage um that can often be very hard to access um but also i mean that just feeds into the general uk problems with trans healthcare and the long waiting list that people are on um if you've had to go through an asylum claim and even have been recognized and gone through that whole process then that's a long time and then you're put on a further waiting list to get the kind of healthcare that you need um and then just finally, briefly, um, even if none of that precarity happens, and you get your asylum pro- claim process pretty quickly um, and you do gain asylum. Um, there's a really, there was an interesting study that I was reading the other day in the Netherlands that focused on three, um, I think, Syrian, young Syrian women. Um, and it was just very a very complicated, nuanced description of the way that they had to put their careers on hold because, for example, um, of the way that um, they were assigned jobs um, by the state that was... Um, that was looking after them and their husband would get a job quicker than they did and then they had a child so where they wanted to split healthcare uh, like childcare um responsibilities they actually just couldn't because even when their husband wanted to share that responsibility they were dependent on the state to assign them um jobs differently um and so yeah the, those kind of gendered problems of who is assumed to be the breadwinner breadwinner in a household um or who is assumed to be able to do um, certain kinds of jobs. Um, these are women with degrees, sometimes PhDs, sometimes, you know, master's degrees, um, who were who were forced to 
only focus on childcare, which would never have been what they wanted to do in their home country. Um, so yeah, those problems are ongoing, whatever your status. Um, uh, but I think that the precarity element is a particularly dangerous one for vulnerable women. That's really interesting. Thank you. I think a general kind of trend in all of this and every single stage is just the complete lack of consideration for for refugees as human beings, but also kind of this gendered aspect, as we've discussed, like the lack of safe spaces for women in camps to get to toilets and the lack of consideration of the trauma that people might have gone through. I know that this is quite a, um, a prominent issue in period poverty. And I know that this is something you've done quite a bit of research on. Can you speak to this a bit? Yeah, so the, my research in this area has mainly been informed by Women for Refugee Women Again. Um, I keep mentioning them because they're just such an amazing um, charity. Go and look at the work they do. Um, but also Bloody Good Period, which is another great charity that um, do, provides period provision for um, for homeless people and refugees and asylum seekers especially. Um, so they did an, a study which um, just showed the kind of... Um, persistence of period poverty amongst asylum seekers and refugees in the UK so this is even people who've been granted status so asylum seekers get something somewhere around the 35 pound mark a week um and that's a figure that um is far too low for anyone it's like less than 70 percent of income support um and um but specifically it doesn't take into consideration the fact that women every well people who menstruate every four weeks need to buy period supplies which are um quite expensive um so there were just lots of cases where um, these, it, it was women in this study, but obviously important to mention that it's not just women who face period poverty, um, would choose between feeding their child and buying period supplies. And I think when this particularly came home to me was a woman who described her going to her interview with her lawyer to discuss her asylum claim. Um, so not the asylum interview itself, but um, talking to her lawyer about her claim beforehand. Um, and she had she was had nothing to bleed into and I just thought like imagine sitting and all you're worrying about is whether you're going to leave blood on the chair um how are you going to focus on giving evidence and the the kind of or all of the aspects of your story when all you're worried about is the like urgent that urgent material need um and there are obviously women who are sleeping rough and don't have access didn't have access to peer provisions or even when people did have access to peer provision it was often from charities if they couldn't afford to buy it themselves and that that was so fluctuating so one day you turn up at the church that was providing you period pads and um they they would have a, a good supply and then the next day you show up and they'd have run out by then or they hadn't received enough donations of it to provide for everyone um so, I mean, very similar to the issues um, around period poverty that lots of people in the UK face. So a recent, fairly recent study by Pan International found that at least like one in 10 girls had faced period poverty at some point or been able to afford period provision at some point in their life. Um, and this is just that that um, percentage, I'm pretty sure, skyrockets and really shoots up amongst um, ref- the refugee and asylum seeking population. Um, and it's just, again, like you said, another instance of something that was blatantly not considered um, in the amount of money that we give them in the kind of services that we see as essential. I think quite bef- uh, when I've done research on this, gender within refugee experiences is quite often referred to as like the hidden aspect. But something quite mm-hmm. personal, like even for someone who is like a, um, like a UK born woman, period is uh, having a period is quite like a personal thing it's not 
kind of societally open to talk about so this is just kind of even further hidden in I know last time we spoke about this you mentioned um that I can't remember who it was I'm sure you'll tell me but um there was in a camp they had brought forward um something that they thought was going to be really helpful for helping period poverty but there was a lack of consideration Firstly, very briefly on the first thing that you said about talking about periods, this was something that women in detention face when they would literally have to go up to a male guard and ask them for a period pad, who in one case that I read would give them one period pad the whole day because he obviously had never had a period and didn't understand how long you needed them or even more cynically had been told that everyone only gets one because you can put up with that, um, which is obvious major healthcare complications if you wear a pad for longer than a couple of hours. And then with the taboo that women didn't want to then say, oh, actually, I'll need four or five. On top of that, the kind of racialized abuse that they're already facing and could be exposing themselves to when they ask for more is just, yeah, a major example of that, the implications of that. But yes, the thing that I was um, referring to last time we spoke was, um, it was a study that I was reading about period underwear, which is like menstrual cups, which are often being trialed in lower income countries or places where period poverty is very prevalent. It's often seen as a kind of wonderful, magical solution because... They often need less water, they're often easier to maintain and they're reusable so they don't cost as much um, in the longer term. Um, And they thought the period underwear would be very helpful because you can wear it for a lot longer. So you can just put it on in the morning, wear it throughout the day, you don't have to change your pad. But the thing that women pointed out, and I think it was again just women in this study, was that you had to take off all of your underwear in order to change it. So even though you had to change it less uh, frequently, you would be exposed into it like almost completely naked um whereas a period pad they had very much found ways to just change the pad yeah that was just an example where the researchers they handled it very well in the study but they were very surprised that that was a concern it just shows the importance of even when this was an it was trialed very sensitively but if this hadn't been thought out and piloted and on a small scale so thoroughly earlier by gender sensitive researchers then this is exactly the kind of thing that could be just rolled out because it seems like a very sensible solution but doesn't actually take into consideration or consult people who are its beneficiaries. I think yeah I think that's really interesting I mean it's fab obviously that in this study they did consult women and there was kind of that consideration and they didn't just go um, ahead without considering it but I think it's really um, kind of typical of this lack of consideration all around so this brings me on to kind of like our final question what do you think should be done what needs to be implemented how can we support kind of this gendered experience so I think I could talk a bit I think it's kind of obvious from the way I've spoken about the gaps in provision what needs to be done materially in terms of what what we can provide better so actually building period supplies for example into aid that's given in camps or money that's given to refugees but I think stepping back and looking at the bigger picture this isn't just about small policy or design changes I think there are two big things two like paradigm shift overhauls that need to happen the first one is consultation which we were just talking about so women and people of marginalized genders at every stage of the process not just at the end to evaluate the design like from the initial conceptions of whatever policy or provision is being considered need to be consulted in the process because they have the expertise of lived experience um which is often a lot more valuable than experts who are making these policies and so yeah consultation is super important whatever um design or policy you're putting in but then i think going even bigger the thing that needs to happen is humanization right because one of the i think this is especially 
especially evident in the approach to people who have periods is that we don't consider or we're, we're so discouraged from considering refugees and displaced people like as people and so we think um i think often in we, the way we think about refugee camps the way we think about the provision that we can give these people is that we think that they can be content with basics at like the kind of myth of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that there are certain things that people need to have sorted and then you can build from there when actually these things often really all come together at once and it's not the case that some people can simply be content because they have had the misfortune of having to flee their country that that means in any way they can be simply content with the basics of life and I, I think that's often the way that we see it that these people can just have as long as they have food and shelter and the things that they need then we've done our job I think we need to go so much further to like help like give these people opportunities to pursue the things that they enjoy doing and to have like real self-actualization and I think that really comes into a gendered approach because for obvious reasons that women are very much people too um, and they are often even even more left out of that that sphere of of humanization and the particularly gendered and also racialized aspects of dehumanization which you read about when you hear about what these women are facing in detention and the way that they're treated is part of a system and a politics in the UK especially but in Europe more broadly and in a lot of western countries which are closing their frontiers um, and making themselves into fortresses that allows us to think that these people aren't like us um, and don't need the same things that we do and that's obviously just not the case Um, and so I think a gendered approach is one that really helps that really helps us recognize that these people face on a deeper scale the things that like we as women or people of marginalized genders in luckier situations also face on a smaller scale on a daily basis Um, so I think gender is a useful way in to that kind of humanization Thank you so much. That was so considerately put and a really, really insightful kind of take on gendered experiences of refugeehood. Thank you so much for today, Jess. It's been amazing talking to you. No, thank you so much.